The time is now. Volume 5, Episode 87, Happy New Year from all of us here at Employment Law Now. I am Mike Schmidt, starting our fifth year of Employment Law Now. I am still your host of this podcast and the Vice Chair of the Labor and Employment Department at Cozen O'Connor. This is the time of year when people typically feel refreshed from some time off in December, Maybe they feel hopeful and packed with a new set of resolutions that uh, will probably last for a couple of days. It's such a strange time, though, uh, whether fears, concerns, and health problems over COVID-19 and the vaccine rollout have lingered from before the New Year's Eve ball dropped to all this political uneasiness. Whichever side of the aisle you're on, 2021 is not yet the Oz that everyone has been hoping for. Yet, we still remain hopeful that it will be sooner rather than later, that we will not be ending 2021 the same way we ended 2020. I am hopeful that you and your organizations have been able to manage through the economic and other challenges that continue to hit businesses large and small. I'm hopeful that employers and employees can work together to navigate all of those challenges, and I'm certainly hopeful that all of you personally and your families and friends continue to be safe and healthy as we start a new year. I am particularly thankful as well to all of you for subscribing, downloading, and listening to this podcast in 2020. We have had tens of thousands of listens to our 2020 episodes on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, everywhere you could find a podcast, including our dedicated website, employmentlawnow.com, and on significant legal content platforms such as J.D. Supra. Wherever you are listening to the podcast, I am so appreciative of you doing so. Please keep the comments coming. I received so many great emails thanking me for the podcast as well as offering suggestions for content in the new year. Please keep all of those coming and I will continue to strive to keep the content coming that will help you and your organizations understand and maybe enjoy a little bit employment law issues in this next year. So, I begin Volume 5 of my podcast with this 21 for 21 episode, 21 issues that employers should be thinking about as we begin 2021. As the years go, it gets so much more difficult to correlate the number of issues with the year. Uh, I will admit that 2002 was or would have been much easier for me only having to come up with two issues, but here we are, 21 issues that I will be doing more deep dives about in 2021 both myself and through various guests that I will continue to have on the podcast. And as I will get into in a moment, so much will also depend on the new Biden administration in Washington, D.C., a new administration that just tomorrow 
Wednesday, January 20th, 2021, will be inaugurated in Washington, D.C. So let me set the stage for future discussion. Here is my 21 for 21. My apologies in advance for any topics or issues that feel left out or were inadvertently left off this list. My intent was to be inclusive and hit as many of the big topics as I can in this one rundown, just to give you a bit of a checklist of things to be thinking about, again, as we start this new year. I have divided my 21 for 21 into four main categories, just because I like keeping things as organized as I can. The four main categories are COVID-19 issues, employment relationship issues, social justice and employee action issues, and federal versus state agency action issues. I feel like I'm hosting Jeopardy here. Uh, We'll take COVID-19 issues for $400, Mike. So uh, let's begin with our first category, and this will cover uh, issues one through three, and this is the category of COVID-19 issues. Issue number one to be looking for in 2020 of our 21 issues Continued litigation over COVID-19 decisions that were made in 2020. A little bit more than two-thirds of 2020, as you all know, was spent with companies having to make employment decisions almost on the fly. Such a novel set of circumstances, generational in nature. Those decisions will have repercussions in the lawsuits that we continue to see in 2021. The WARN Act. So many people were forced to lay off employees in 2020. Well, just a couple of weeks ago, on the first Monday of 2021, a Florida federal judge refused to dismiss a class action in a case called Benson versus Enterprise Leasing Company, where layoffs this past spring allegedly violated WARN because the required advance notice was not given of those layoffs, while the employer in the case relied on the exigency of the pandemic relied on the argument that the pandemic constituted a national or natural disaster for which no notice was required, or alternatively constituted unforeseeable circumstances for which a reduced amount of notice was required. We will continue to see worn cases being brought for layoffs that took place, and the longer that employers waited in 2020 and maybe even into 2021, before engaging in some rounds of layoffs while still relying on the pandemic, we will start to see judges decide these issues of natural disaster and unforeseeable circumstances to decide what was really unforeseeable the longer we have gone on uh, since the beginning of this pandemic. When it comes to FFCRA leave, the Family's First Coronavirus Response Act, we will continue to see litigation over decisions not to grant leave or to ask for additional documentation than what was allowed under the regulations. Lawsuits that claim violations of the FFCRA, and we will also see lawsuits and litigation involving non-FFCRA accommodations. What is the future of telecommuting accommodation requests, for example? Those companies who were so loath to provide work from home as an accommodation based on the argument that employees would not be able to be productive, 
What happens when 9, 10, 11 months were spent by those employees working from home with companies saying orally and in writing that their workforce was productive? The question will be, were they productive or were they just as productive as they would have been working in the office at their facilities? So we will see litigation in these issues, FFCRA leave and non-FFCRA accommodations. What about safety issues? How are employees and groups of employees getting around workers' compensation bars to bring personal injury actions against employers? Will there be any liability shields for employers against COVID-19 lawsuits. There have been attempts on the federal level to pass legislation shielding certain types of liability for the benefit of certain types of employers. Will that pass on the federal level? Will it pass on the state level? We will also likely see a lot more whistleblowing claims coming out of COVID-19 workplace issues. Individuals who do return back to the office and decide that the workplace and the employer are not following best practices and guidelines, thereby blowing the whistle either in a private lawsuit or to a government agency. So that's issue one to keep watch of in 2021. Issue number two, will we see extensions of the COVID-19 leave requirements that were introduced in 2020. The December 31st, 2020 came and went without the FFCRA being extended on the federal level, as we talked about on this podcast right before the new year. A related question, will we see an extension of the FFCRA even in modified form in 2021 with the new Biden administration? And if not, will states play a larger role in COVID-19 related leave? The need for leave in this pandemic may be continuing in 2021, but the FFCRA will not be. One of Congress's last acts of 2020 as part of its big relief bill did extend the ability for employers to take tax credits, but did not extend the obligation to provide FFCRA leave. The hope was to incentivize employers until March 31st, 2021. So in other words, employers are allowed to voluntarily provide leave to employees and then can take dollar for dollar tax credits until March 31st, 2021. The congressional action did not provide a new entitlement to additional leave if employees used up their FFCRA leave in 2020. The other requirements of the FFCRA no longer exists, such as job protection upon return from leave, and it's not likely that employers must comply with every aspect of the FFCRA word for word in order to claim those tax credits. But if employers do provide some form of FFCRA leave through March 31st, 2021, they can take the tax credits. Well, what about the states? Virginia just became the first state to make COVID-19 requirements permanent. There are other states that have passed COVID-19 leave legislation in 2020 without an expiration date coming at the end of 2020. 
So one of the common takeaways here, while so much, and I say this all the time on the podcast, while so much is talked about on the federal level, don't ignore, don't forget the significant, significant uh, activity that takes place on the state and local levels. Travel-related guidance continues to change, as does the corresponding need to review and possibly revise your organization's handbooks and PTO policies to reflect the realities of COVID-19 that will continue in 2021. So it's important to watch as we get into this new year what will take place on the federal level with any FFCRA extension and what takes place on the state level with regard to continuing obligations to provide paid COVID-19 leave. Issue number three of 2021, also related in this big bucket of COVID-19 issues, vaccines and mandatory vaccine policies. I did a couple of episodes at the end of last year on this very issue. To reset for a moment, we are at the beginning stages of the vaccine rollout to certain first groups of the population, whether it's the federal government's fault, state's fault, a combination of both. People are going a little bit haywire because the process, the vaccine rollout process has gone less than smoothly. But the big question, can employers require that employees get vaccinated? There will be big developments on this question as we continue into 2021. But where are we now as we start 2021? Well, as you know, the FDA has licensed and authorized for use these certain COVID-19 vaccinations under what's known as an EUA, Emergency Use Authorization Process. And it sort of is what it sounds like. It's authorized to be used for emergency use purposes, given the state of the pandemic. But the vaccines have not gone through the otherwise robust and full approval process that other drugs and items subject to FDA review and approval have to go through. And under the FDA's rules for EUA drugs and vaccines, there must be a fact sheet given to those who are being given the vaccines that specifically say it is optional that specifically say you are not required to get this vaccine. So there is an open question as to whether employers can mandate something that at least one arm of the government currently says cannot be mandated, at least from a non-employment perspective, because of the EUA status of these vaccines. Hopefully we'll get more guidance on that particular question, but that issue aside, the EEOC issued guidance on December 16th, 2020 on this issue of whether employers can mandate vaccines under the EEO laws that are within the jurisdiction of the EEOC. And I think there are two takeaways, as I mentioned in my December podcast on this issue. The EEOC has blessed mandatory vaccine policies under the EEO laws subject to requirements that employers accommodate legitimate disability issues as well as sincerely held religious beliefs. And the second takeaway is that it's probably better if you as an employer are going to mandate vaccines, it's probably better to have some unrelated third party administer the vaccines and then just require proof that the vaccine was given rather than you as the employer administering the vaccine yourself. Of course, 
that is a much more difficult task when you're dealing with small, smaller and more rural areas of the country where vaccination centers are not highly available. Expect other guidance from other agencies beyond the EEOC to follow. But the other question, too, here is if you decide that you can legally mandate vaccines, should you? And you need to look at the question from all three sides, from the company side. Is it really a necessity to have your employees, your workforce, be subject to a mandatory vaccine policy? Are they customer-facing? Are they public-facing? Is it necessary from a company standpoint? Look at it from the side of the person being told that they must get it. We still have a significant percentage of people in the population who are somewhere between concerned about or refusing to get vaccinated. What will it do for morale if a large portion of your particular workforce still does not want to get vaccinated? And look at, look at it from the person being told, the employee being told that they must work with someone who didn't get a vaccine. So there are three sides to every story, and this one is no different. Look for more guidance in 2021. Look for more discussion on this issue of whether employers can mandate vaccines, and if so, whether they should. So we're up to issue number four of our 21 issues you should be watching for in 2021. And here is where we start um, category number two. Category number two that I have labeled employment relationship issues. And this is going to cover um, issues numbers four through eight of our 21 issues. So issue number four to be mindful of this new year independent contractor and gig economy issues. This has long been a source of angst with employers around the country. So many rules, so many tests to determine whether someone is properly classified as an independent contractor. Maybe it's for wage and hour purposes. Maybe it's for unemployment insurance. Maybe it's for tax. Maybe it's for, uh, I don't know, workers' compensation. There's so many rules, so many sources. But at least the United States Department of Labor has chimed in, at least for now. On January 6th of 2021, the U.S. Department of Labor announced its final rule on independent contractor classification that will take effect on March 8th of 2021. Reflecting a more Republican administration pro-business leaning, The DOL's press release touts the new rule's ability to, quote, streamline and clarify, end quote, the test for independent contractors. In short, economic reality is the crux with this new rule, where you're required to determine whether an individual is in business for himself or herself, or is otherwise economically dependent on the potential employer for work. Under the final rule, There are two core factors that must be analyzed to start that the Department of Labor believes are the most probative. One, the nature and degree of control being actually asserted over the individual's work. And two, the worker's opportunity for profit or loss based on their own initiative or based on their own investment. If both of those two core factors point in the same direction, either toward independent contractor or toward employee, then you stop right there. 
Do not pass go. Do not collect $200. Do not proceed any further. However, if both of those two core factors do not point to the same classification, the Department of Labor's new rule identifies three other relevant factors to consider. <clears throat> One, the amount of specialized skill or training required for the work that's not provided by the employer. Two, the degree of permanence of the working relationship between the worker and the employer. And three, whether the work is part of an integrated unit of production. It is, of course, a non-exhaustive list. There are other factors that may be relevant to the particular business, to the particular industry. But those are the three that have been identified specifically by the Department of Labor to weigh on this independent contractor classification issue if the first two core factors do not point in the same direction. I will tell you, from my standpoint, most companies are probably best served by going through my personal duck test, at least as a threshold matter. What is the duck test? Well, if it quacks like a duck, walks like a duck, looks like a duck, it's a duck. Mike, what does that have to do with employment law? Well, if you're looking at the individual whose classification you are questioning, if that individual looks like your other employees, has all the other indicia of all of your employees on your payroll, if that individual quacks like an employee, walks like an employee, and looks like an employee, that individual is likely an employee. Big question also as we go into 2021, will President Biden and a Biden Department of Labor reverse this rule to make it a little bit more pro-employee, to make it go back to an older test? That's a big question we'll have to watch. What about state initiatives? California just last week came out with a real big decision out of the California Supreme Court that their significant independent contractor decision, Dynamex, does apply retroactively. Does apply retroactively. To demonstrate an independent contractor relationship, Dynamex created this ABC test that must be satisfied. A, the worker must be free from the control and direction of the hiring entity in connection with the performance of the work. B, the worker is performing work that is outside the usual course of the hiring entity's business, which tends to be the hardest of the ABC factors. And C, the worker is customarily engaged in an independently established trade, occupation, or business of the same nature as that involved in the work performed. This ABC test on the California level is very strict, and it contrasts with the multi-factor balancing test that many other states use, and that in some respects, the new Department of Labor on the federal level has adopted. What will other states do? Will other states be more liberal in their independent contractor tests? Remember, it's not just about the federal tests that you need to comply with. It's also about the state tests. There will be lots of developments in 2021 on this issue, impacting a lot of industries and companies, particularly those that engage gig workers. Issue number five of our 21 issues to be mindful of. 
another issue that may be taking one step up and two steps back in terms of agency rule uh, viability in the long term, again, on the United States Department of Labor front, the agency issued a final rule on the joint employer issue early last year in 2020, came up with a four-part test to decide whether two connected entities could be liable as joint employers. One, can they hire or fire? Two, do they substantially control the schedule or conditions of employment? Three, do they determine pay rates and methods of payment? And four, do they maintain employment records? Again, it's another seemingly pro-business rule that seemingly was welcomed by many employers, many industries, including those uh, using the franchisor-franchisee model. But wait, on September 8th, 2020, a New York federal judge struck down the crux of the Department of Labor's joint employer rule as going too far, at least as it applied to vertical entity relationships. Remember, we distinguish between vertical relationships where there is an employing entity and some intermediary entity like a staffing company from horizontal relationships where you have two separate but overlapping employers on the same level. The New York federal judge in September 2020 struck down the bulk of the rule as it applied to vertical entity relationships. Will that decision be appealed? If it's appealed, will the decision be reversed so that we reinstate the Department of Labor's rule? And again, got to ask, how will the Biden administration impact not only the rule, but as to whether the federal court decision in New York will be appealed in the first place? Questions to watch in early 2021. The NLRB, the National Labor Relations Board, had also spoken on this issue in its final rule, which looked at a direct and intermediate control standard, which provided businesses and contractors much-needed clarity with respect to their legal obligations in these challenging and uncertain times. In order to be found as a joint employer under the NLRB's rule, a business had to possess and actually exercise, not just reserve the right to exercise, but actually exercise substantial, direct, and immediate control over at least one essential term and condition of employment of another employer's employees. Again, stay tuned in 2021 and throughout the Biden administration to see how the tea leaves might be read on this issue of joint employer liability. Issue number six of 2021, employee mobility, restrictive covenants. You can expect to see a continuation of what we have begun to see over the past couple of years More and more states have either prohibited outright or have significantly limited the use of restrictive covenants for most employees. And depending on who you're talking to, some refer to restrictive covenants uh, as an umbrella term for non-competes and non-solicits. Some people refer to restrictive covenants solely as non-compete agreements. Either way, again, I think you're going to start to see in 2021 and beyond more states taking a position on this issue that is not really favorable to enforcing restrictive covenants against everybody. 
Massachusetts did it by statute in 2018, enacting a law that restricts the circumstances where restrictive covenants can be used and provided both a process and mandatory language in any restrictive covenant agreement. Earlier this year, right now in 2021, the District of Columbia just enacted a virtual ban on non-compete agreements completely, with very little exception. Just by way of example, there's an exception for high-level senior medical personnel who earn more than $250,000 a year. That's the kind of exception that we're talking about. Otherwise, the District of Columbia has just enacted a complete ban on virtually all non-compete agreements. We will see more of these. In what kind of form, what kind of fashion? Will they ban restrictive covenants for all workers or for certain categories of workers, certain levels of wage earners? Will there be limitations on geography and temporal restrictions? Will there be certain required consideration in order to hold someone to a restrictive covenant? Keep an eye out for this issue. Also of concern, antitrust issues. We had a couple of podcast episodes on that over the last two years, and we'll have another one moving forward in 2021 on this issue as well. The antitrust issues, whether competitors can legally enter into restrictive covenants with each other, no poach agreements, where you are essentially agreeing not to poach the other's employees. Well, the government has considered that to be anti-competitive behavior. The problem is we're not just talking about civil liability, but criminal liability seems to be an increasing concern as well. On January 5th, 2021, the Department of Justice Antitrust Division announced the very first criminal indictment for no poach agreements. The indictment came against a healthcare entity for entering into no poach agreements with competitors not to solicit each other's senior level employees. Obviously, we're early on in that particular case, and they're just allegations at the moment, but the fact that the federal government is stepping up enforcement actions and with criminal consequences is definitely a trend worth watching in 2021. Related to that are new protections afforded on the other side to those who act as whistleblowers raising these potential antitrust issues. Congress just passed the Criminal Antitrust Anti-Retaliation Act of 2019, which became law right before the new year on December 23, 2020. The act, in essence, prohibits employers from retaliating against any individuals who report criminal antitrust violations to their employer or the federal government, or who participate in a federal governmental criminal antitrust investigation or proceeding. So we are 30 minutes in to this podcast, giving you 21 issues to be mindful of in 2021. I'm going to leave it to you now. Do we stop here and give you a part two tomorrow, or do we plow through and continue with our list of 21 issues? Well, there we go. The majority has spoken. We will plow forward. Issue number seven of 21, wage and hour issues. We will unquestionably continue to see wage and hour issues across the country as we have really for the past few years. 
But now the COVID-19 pandemic has introduced a slew of other wage and hour issues beyond the normal ones that we will see get litigated. Remote work issues. People who are not being paid overtime or for actual hours worked because they are working remotely. What about time spent engaging in COVID-19 screening? What about exemption issues when you don't bring back your entire workforce, but you do bring back your managers and other exempt employees only to have them perform the work of many of your non-exempt employees who were not brought back? What's the impact on your exemption classifications? What kind of wage and hour, particularly on the state level, obligations do you have for final payments, for written notifications for those employees who are being laid off or terminated as a result of COVID-19? As the Department of Labor, um, the United States Department of Labor, uh, just revised its regulations, and we also talked about that right before the new year, we will likely see new litigation spurred by more pro-employer rules around who can be included in tip pools, what tip credits can be taken by employers, as well as other wage and hour claims primarily coming out of the hospitality industry that has been so decimated in this pandemic. Issue number eight of 21, the erosion of at-will employment. Wow. Is there anything more sacrosanct traditionally for employment law than this notion of at-will employment? It is largely a well-known statement, even throughout the non-lawyer layperson community, that an employee who is not employed for a fixed term is at-will, or if they don't otherwise have some agreement that limits the right to be terminated, they are at will and can be fired or can quit at any time without or with notice for any reason at all, as long as that reason does not violate a law, such as discrimination or retaliation, or in some jurisdictions, as long as it does not violate a clear public policy. Many would argue that in the past few decades, we have seen a minor, if not continuous, erosion of the at-will concept where employers cannot simply terminate an employee at any time and for any reason freely. I believe that states and local municipalities will speed up that erosion beginning in 2021. Exhibit A, New York City. Starting with the fast food industry. Earlier this month, New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio signed a law that was passed by the New York City Council to prohibit fast food workers from being fired without just cause or without some legitimate economic reason. Think about that for a moment. New York City fast food employers cannot fire their fast food workers without just cause or some legitimate economic reason. So covered fast food workers are no longer, by law, at-will employees. Like everything else, there are lots of terms of art here, including the size of fast food employers that are actually covered by this law, what constitute just cause. But the point is, municipalities are starting to get more aggressive in limiting at-will concepts. And we will start to see this erosion continue in 2021 along with things like fair work week and scheduling laws, 
again, regulations that put limits on an employer's ability not only to fire employees, but to schedule as they want, to change schedules as they want, and to take other employment-related actions. The erosion of at-will employment. Broad category number three, social justice and employee action. This one is going to take us from issue nine all the way through issue 13. Social justice and employee action. Issue number nine of 21 to be watching for. Momentum from the United States Supreme Court landmark ruling in Bostock. Remember when we had little pockets of discussion in 2020? We had little windows of time where we were able to talk about significant issues unrelated to COVID-19? This was one of them. On June 15th, 2020, the United States Supreme Court issued a 6-3 to ruling that resolved the circuit split on the rights of gay and transgender employees, ruling for the first time that Title VII's prescription of sex discrimination does include discrimination based on sexual orientation and gender identity. Many states around the country already banned those forms of discrimination in their state laws before Bostock, but this was still a pretty big deal, not only from the optics of it, not only from the moral and philosophical perspectives, but from some realities as well, particularly in states that did not otherwise ban sexual orientation and gender identity discrimination. The question for us to be mindful of now is how will we see this landmark Bostock ruling impact the workplace and employment law in 2021 and beyond? There will be issues and lawsuits to address bathroom and locker room access in the workplace, for example, pronoun use, benefits requirements, among others. The intersection between the rights of employees and the rights of employers with religious views will likely also be tested, as the author of the majority's opinion in Bostock, Justice Gorsuch, expressed that the Bostock decision was not weighing in on the impact of this scope of Title VII ruling and the possibility for religious-based arguments and exemptions. And again, we must stop here and ask as well, how will a Biden administration, Department of Justice, or a Biden EEOC join this dialogue on civil rights and LGBTQ issues and initiatives? We'll have to wait and see. Issue number 10, a corollary to what we were just talking about with Bostock, the expansion of religious freedom. On July 8, 2020, the United States Supreme Court issued another ruling, this time by a 7-2 vote, to weaken the ability of certain religious-based employees to be able to make claims under federal EEO laws based on those laws' ministerial exception. In other words, or put another way, it increased the ability of employers to claim that they are a religious minister and therefore exempt from inquiry as to its workforce actions. The Supreme Court's decision now requires a threshold inquiry into whether the employee at issue actually performs important religious functions for its religious employer. 
So for those applicable organizations, it behooves you to make clear in your job descriptions or otherwise what religious type job duties are being performed and that are essential to an individual's job in order to increase the likelihood that you will be able to, as an organization, argue the ministerial exception to discrimination claims. The NLRB and the EEOC also got into this act, the former announcing that it would not exercise jurisdiction over religious educational institutions, even if it was an issue that otherwise was within the NLRB's jurisdiction. While the EEOC issued a draft version of updated guidance on religious discrimination and accommodations, and we will get into the EEOC's position on that in a future episode. There are a few other religious liberty cases pending in the Supreme Court and elsewhere that we will continue to watch and report on as well. But the issue is one, and and the implications for tension between employer and employee rights is one that I think will be at the forefront of 2021 employment law. Issue number 11, social justice movements and off-duty activities by employees. You know, where 2018 and 2019 shined a much-needed light on the hashtag MeToo movement, 2020 accelerated the introduction of Black Lives Matter and other social justice movements into our daily discourse. It also has served to blur the lines between what is work-related conduct and what is non-work-related conduct, and has put into question the extent to which employers can take action against employees who engage in various off-the-clock and off-premises activities. Most states have some form of legal activities law which prohibits employers from taking adverse action against employees engaging in legal activities laws, or legal activities, I should say, off-premises and off-the-clock. You need to look at the particular law in your jurisdiction to see uh, how that would impact your business because the various laws have varying um, definitions and varying degrees of protection. Are employers prohibited from taking adverse action against employees who engage in racist or homophobic actions? A big question the last couple of weeks, can employers take action against employees who were involved in the rioting at the Capitol on January 6th? It's very important for employers, as a bottom line, to differentiate the conduct from the cause. Differentiate the conduct from the cause. If an employee is engaging in illegal conduct, maybe referring to or taking some racist or unlawful discriminatory action or unlawfully trespassing actually within the Capitol building as opposed to just being in Washington DC on that day to support some of the arguments that those who are pro-Trump supporters were espousing without actually engaging in illegal activity that might make the difference for whether an employer can actually take adverse action against that employee. Differentiate the conduct from the cause. Issue number 12, workplace diversity training. Remember that President Trump issued an executive order prohibiting certain types of diversity and bias training for federal contractors. 
Also remember that just this past December, as we talked about on a separate podcast episode, a federal judge in California issued a nationwide preliminary injunction. Will that be appealed? Will, in the alternative, the Biden administration get rid of that executive order and perhaps issue a stronger executive order going the other way and promoting workplace diversity and bias training? In any case, when it comes to social justice movements and off-duty activities, employees are going to be engaging in more of those, certainly in 2021. So it's important not to be trigger-happy, not to be knee-jerk in your reactions to those activities, but to carefully analyze the extent to which you as an organization want to take adverse action based on certain kinds of conduct. When it comes to workplace diversity training in the same vein, the issue of workplace cultural sensitivity training will continue to be a hot one. Will there be mandatory training requirements, either by executive order with President Biden or on the state and local levels, as we have already start to see happen? How will your workplace cultural sensitivity trainings impact recruitment and retention? What kinds of issues arise with various internal employee engagement initiatives that your organization is creating, such as affinity groups? Is your organization allowing some groups to have formal meetings while not allowing other groups to do so? Workplace diversity training and workplace diversity related issues will continue to be a hot issue in 2021 that your organization should be thinking about. Issue number 13, an increase in unionization. This too was the subject of a separate podcast toward the end of 2020 and will be again in 2021. All of these issues that I've been talking about, increasing social activism, workplace policies and practices, the expansion of employee rights in areas such as disability and religious accommodations and freedoms, LGBTQ rights, the continued staggering use of the internet and social media where in-person gatherings are not possible or practical. All of this has led to more and more of a desire for employees to collectively raise issues of importance to them, and we will continue to see that, particularly in a Biden administration. To that end, approximately 6,000 workers at Amazon's Alabama facility will vote next month in February on whether to form that company's first union after warehouse working conditions and pandemic safety measures prompted this collective action by employees. And after the NLRB recently allowed that election to be conducted more easily by mail. Large bucket number four. And this will take us through the end from issue 14 through issue 21. The bucket is federal versus state agency action. I've said it a couple of times now, but it bears repeating. As important as federal initiatives are, As important as what Congress will do, what a President Biden will do, what a Biden administration agency will do, we are seeing more and more states and local governments get into the business of regulating the employer-employee relationship. But let's look at federal state agency action first and what we can expect in 2021. 
Number 14, the EEOC. The EEOC was active in 2020 and will continue to be active in 2021. We will likely see more use of opinion letters. The EEOC just issued one recently on the Older Workers Benefits Protection Act, dealing with age discrimination, settlements, and releases, where the EEOC just made clear in its opinion letter that you do not have to disclose for a large group termination non-U.S. citizens as part of the decisional unit because non-U.S. citizens are not considered covered employees. The EEOC also revised its conciliation procedures. Conciliation, as many of you may know, is an informal process within the agency by which the EEOC and parties attempt to resolve discrimination findings that were made before litigation is then commenced. The EEOC's new conciliation rules require that the EEOC provide certain information to respondent organizations now. For example, a written summary of the known facts and non-privileged information that the EEOC relied on in its reasonable cause finding, a written summary of the EEOC's legal basis for finding reasonable cause, as well as the basis for monetary or other relief, as well as advising the respondent in writing that the EEOC has designated that particular case as systemic class or a pattern or practice case. The EEOC has also been active in posting a new webpage to provide transparency about how the Commission approaches systemic discrimination enforcement efforts. The new webpage provides background on how the Commission determined that systemic enforcement is effective. It explains how the EEOC will determine in the first place what systemic discrimination is, and it details for all to see the process that the EEOC will use to initiate and pursue a systemic discrimination case. And if that were not enough, the EEOC has also just recently proposed two new rules regarding employer wellness programs. If your organization engages in a wellness program, you would be wise to learn about the EEOC's new proposed rules. The first proposed rule describes how employers may offer incentives for an employee to participate in a wellness program that obtains medical information, while the second proposed rule amends regulations under GINA, the Genetic Information Non-Discrimination Act, which details the extent to which an employer can offer incentives to an employee in exchange for that employee's spouse or other family member to provide information about disease or, or disorder within the family. Issue number 15, the Department of Labor. The Department of Labor was very active in 2020. We expect the Department of Labor to be equally active in 2021. As I said a few moments ago, the Department of Labor on the federal level has loosened its tipping rules. It has also provided FMLA guidance that telemedicine time still counts as permissible FMLA leave time. And there will likely be further activity moving forward from the Department of Labor, particularly a Biden Department of Labor, on the overtime exemption front, as well as perhaps on the joint employer rule I mentioned before. 
Issue number 16, the NLRB. Look how we are ticking one federal agency after another. These are the big federal agencies who tend to be the active ones as far as employment law goes. So number 16 of our 21 issues to be mindful of in 2021, the NLRB. We know the NLRB has been active. We expect it to continue to be active, not only in the area of social media policies and do's and don'ts, but, for example, the NLRB just recently finalized rules and amended regulations on elections and election procedures, allowed employers in certain situations to bar cell phones in workplace areas, and reaffirmed recently an employer's ability to prohibit employees from using company email to discuss union organizing activities. Just in December, the NLRB also released advice memos on remote bargaining and hazard pay, and recently seesawed the other way on the permissible scope of social media policies, serving as a more pro-business agency than what we had seen from the NLRB in the past on social media issues. Issue number 17, the last of our federal agency discussion, OSHA. And the question in 2021, will it or will it not? OSHA is the head federal workplace safety agency, but for some reason it has not issued a specific workplace safety standard specifically on COVID-19 and has not, at least yet, issued specific guidance on vaccines and mandatory vaccine policies. I do expect to see OSHA play a significant role in 2021 when it comes to workplace safety and workplace safety issues, as well as providing at some point in 2021 some guidance on workplace policies, either under the general duty clause or under some specific standard um, that it proposes. Issue number 18, and I touched on this uh, already today, the continued aggressiveness of state and local initiatives, particularly filling a void where the federal government just doesn't get anything done. There is also a recognition, I think, that some issues, even if addressed on the federal level, they are better left to state and local action because of the significant differences geographically on things like certain industries operating in one area of the country as opposed to other areas, differences in the nature of workforces around the country and economic and pay conditions. What types of issues will we likely see on the state and local initiative front? Paid leave, minimum wage increases, restrictive covenants, as I just talked about a few minutes ago, ban the box issues, and other scheduling and fair work week types of laws and regulations. Issue number 19, data privacy and cybersecurity. This will continue to be something you should be watching for in 2021. Whether it's a general matter or whether it's due to increasingly uh, more remote working situations, data privacy and cybersecurity is expected to still be a hot topic in 2021. For example, California, I keep bringing up California, they just recently passed the California Privacy Rights Act of 2020 that expanded an already stringent data privacy law and others are sure to follow around the country. Consider your organization's protocols and policies when it comes to the use, storage, and disclosure of sensitive data and the extent to which your company is prepared to adequately address 
any future data breach. We will be hearing more on this topic, I can assure you, in 2021. Issue number 20, we are in the home stretch. That is arbitration. Mandatory arbitration generally and mandatory arbitration in certain specific industries, such as gig workers or other transportation industry workers. Generally, can mandatory arbitration of pre-dispute employment claims be required by employers? On the federal front, there is certainly a pro-arbitration policy that continues in effect, but many states are going the other way, looking to prohibit pre-dispute mandatory arbitration, even if some of those state initiatives are found to be ultimately preempted by federal law. But that is the trend, and I'll spare you for now, but I'll save it for a future episode, my own personal views on whether arbitration is even a good thing in 2021, or, on the other hand, whether arbitration no longer offers the advantages that it once did while still maintaining many of the disadvantages that it always had. But this issue of arbitration and mandatory arbitration will continue to be a hot issue in 2021. And our final issue, certainly not the least, issue number 21421, pay equity and gender issues. We will continue to see decisions like the Ninth Circuit federal court decision that we saw last February, which ruled that the Federal Equal Pay Act's defense that pay differentials can be justified by, quote, any other factor other than sex, end quote, could not be relied on based on an employer's use of an employee's prior salary history. In other words, an employee's prior salary history does not constitute a permissible other factor other than sex. And that ruling came on the heels of many jurisdictions banning prior salary history inquiries during the recruitment and hiring process. We will see, I suspect, in 2021, more lawsuits on pay equity and other gender-related issues. There will be other regulation of the recruitment and hiring process to level the playing field. There will be additional state reporting requirements when it comes to mandatory gender pay disclosures. Employers in increasing numbers will be engaging in self-audits to look at their pay practices. And as I said, pay equity litigation will continue to be on the rise against companies. So there you have it, just about an hour, and we went through what I believe are the top 21 issues organizations should be looking for and thinking about in 2021 when it comes to employment law. I hope this bit of a checklist was helpful to you. We will be taking much more of a deeper dive into all of these issues as we continue with the podcast throughout this year. Until the next time, as always, and again, thank you so much for listening, and I hope all of your labor is productive.